Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. My name is Daniel Azell, your host for season four, and today I am thrilled to welcome Paul Orange, Chief Commercial Officer for HEL Group, to the podcast. We are going to discuss a number of things, including driving innovation, leadership, and change management. I started off this week's episode by asking Paul what innovation in scientific marketing means to him. Um, I like the fact, Danny, that you've chosen just to go straight there without offering to buy me a coffee or a drink first. I mean, that's that's a huge, huge topic. Um, I, I honestly, I've been thinking about this a lot um, since we uh, agreed to do the podcast. I, for me, m- marketing is inherently an innovative discipline. You're either looking to use a different medium to get your message across that resonates with, with your with your customer segment, or you're looking to have a, a new message because something's changed in the market or something's changed in the way your customers are interacting. And I think innovation in scientific marketing, it, it means life or death. It, there is nothing there is nothing else more important. Um, and, and an example that really springs to my mind on this is in a previous life, we did a, um, a roadshow tour where we took a, one of these sort of expandable trucks out on the road. Um, and it was the first time we did it. It was a bit of a gamble. It was quite expensive. And it was actually not like a, a big articulated lorry. It was one of these smaller vans. And this thing worked really, really well. So, of course, what did we do? We said, oh, we've got to do that again next year. It works so well, we should put some more money into it. And then we did go for one of these really big trucks that not only came out sideways, it came out on top. So it was two stories. We had like a a lab and stuff in there. And actually, it didn't work as well because I didn't don't think that we'd really understood why the first thing worked so well. One of the reasons it worked so well was the smaller vehicle was able to get on site with a lot of customers packing, uh, sorry, parking a big lorry. It was really difficult. And we thought, you know, just throwing more money and making it bigger it is a surefire way to success. Actually, we should have thought much harder about the fact that we'd done something that was unusual for us. Customers had responded to it. If we'd have done the same thing to a different set of customers the following year, we'd have probably had similar success because it's different to that customer. So for me, innovation is 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 about thinking about the new ways you need to do things, the new ways you need to communicate your message. Um, but it, you, fundamentally, it has its basis in understanding the you know the basics of of marketing and those essential principles. And you know, I think full disclosure, maybe for the audience, I don't come from a marketing background. I'm like I think many people in our industry, I come from more of a scientific background and have you know ended up in in a marketing field. So I've learned these things on the job rather than like coming from that basic that background but you know i think that's that's a really important part of where innovation comes from it's understanding who you are and thinking about different ways to communicate that to your customers so if we just dive a little deeper and i definitely allow you a coffee or a beer person <laughs> this is the second time paul's uh, paul's been either on the podcast or the webinar uh, with us so what can if you just take us back to when you came up with that idea, the initial idea, the one that worked? How, what was the thinking process behind that? How did you go about coming to to, to that conclusion? Um, I think what we were really trying to do was um, address a particular customer segment. So you know, we were really going for um, rather than like sort of like big pharma companies or, or companies of that kind of scale, who we already had really good relationships with. Instead, we were saying, well, actually, we want to go more to the biotechy, maybe some of the smaller up-and-coming innovative CROs because, you know, our products work for them. We actually want to get them, you know, designed in with these people early on in their development processes and or their, their scale-up, and we need to go and talk to them. And we don't see them, you know, at conference. I mean, this was pre-pandemic a long time ago, so we don't see them at conferences. We don't necessarily interact with them. Um you know the the kind of events that you can do at universities or some of these bigger institutions where you go and do like a foyer exhibition or a, you know an on-site show aren't really that possible because in a lot of smaller companies spaces you know they're using every square centimeter they can for development work or essential business stuff they don't have somewhere you can go set up however if you can say look 
in this science park, there's a number of potential customers who fit that profile, these smaller companies, and luckily they do quite often tend to cluster. What if we turn up and bring everything with us? You know, offer people lunch. I mean, you know, again, a lot of scientists after university, free food is a you know is a really attractive <laughs> value proposition. Um, and 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 I think that's really where we started out with it. And, and I don't think we kind of kept that ethos when we when we went to try and do the the bigger bigger version of that. Now that bigger version could have worked if we'd have thought differently about the customers and the message. But I think we were trying to you know just 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 keep. You know, it's like if we just throw more money at this, does it get bigger and better? Because that's you know that's that's kind of what should work, and it and, and it didn't. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you just assume that by scaling something, it's automatically going to work. But perhaps the fact that you scaled it meant there was less attention on the individual customers, and therefore the the results weren't as effective for you. Yeah, and and actually, scaling is a really interesting thing, and it's something I've been uh, listening to people talk about. Um, in lots of different um, areas of, of life. But, you know, you hear about these pilots that do really exciting things, whether it's bringing education to certain areas or, a, you know, a new way of doing this or that. And then quite often they hit the scaling problem. And, and I think, you know, in marketing, that's a really easy thing for us to to forget. You know, we're always encouraged to do experiments. And I, I am a big believer in doing experiments, you know, trying new things out. Um, but then as you think, well, okay, that worked, I am going to scale it, there is a, I think there's a value in a stepwise scaling because you go from very small to very big. You know, you can miss your target market. You know, a lot of assumptions you had, and it can even just be, I think, as simple as down at that small scale, you've got a lot of focus and attention on it because it's something new, it's something interesting, it's probably a bit of a pet project for somebody or somebody who's got passion about it. You know, as you start to repeat stuff over and over again, you know, you can lose a little bit of that and and you don't realize how much that passion, that focus fed into the success of the activity. You know, some things are not just crank out more and it's okay. Um, I think, you know, people listening to this, I'm sure there are people who work for very large organizations who are essentially a, a volume business and they, they can just sort of like crank the handle faster, do more of the, the whatever it is, and, and they'll see a return up to a certain point. I mean, it's like our organization is, is much smaller, has a, you know, what we think are quite niche customer bases. And we will quite quickly, you know, reach the limit of our, of our addressable audience or our sensible addressable audience. So that's something, you know, I think to, to, to consider. I know this is getting a little bit practical, but that, that's the kind of thing that I think is, is, is easy to overlook as you think about innovating and, and trying new things. Absolutely. So, Paul, in your position as a, as a leader, how, how or what, do you, what steps do you take to drive innovation within your teams? And maybe more importantly, what do you not do to stall innovation? What sort of environment are you trying to create? So, I, so, <laughs> so I think for me, there's 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 probably two things that are important on a, a day in day out basis. The first one is absolutely is bring in good people who are excited about the job they do, who've got ideas, um, and listen to what they say to you. I have got my opinions about the specific activities or tactics we should be doing the way that we should be running marketing. Um, I know I am wrong more often than I am right after talking to members of my team. So you've got to not just hear what they say, you've got to really listen to it and take it on board. And then the second thing is totally encourage your team to be prepared to try out these new things and, and see what kind of response you get from it and that means that as a as a leader you're going to have to allocate your resources to allow that sort of experimentation time that could be money it could actually just be allowing somebody a day to go and do some research or to mock a thing up whatever it happens to be um and and i think if you're willing to do those things then you'll get people to engage with that and you'll get some stuff that actually does make it it becomes customer facing you'll be able to see whether it works and you know then you've got the interesting task of effectively measuring the impact it had um and i would say that 
you know, if I think about my organization at the moment, we're probably not where we want to be on the measurement side of things, but that's okay. You know, we, we can see results. We, we, we get a feel for whether things are working. So if you don't have that measurement, you know, you've got to use your best best judgment on whether it has had the impact. Um, and then think about, okay, so do we now want to replace something else we had planned in, in order to, to fit this in? So an, an example I can maybe give you just at the moment is uh, one of my team um, has been really passionate about trying to do some 3D animation work. Um, and uh, I have to say, you know, she's gone, you know, found a company done a done a trial got some stuff out that looks really interesting and exciting to us and i think you know going back to when you asked me about the 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 truck example i was giving my hesitancy about sort of going full bore on that was i don't really see how we will use it what benefit do we get if we have these 3d animations i mean yes sounds cool there's sort of like i would love to do it because it's new and and exciting but how are we going to use it and when she came back and showed the the sort of first cut of the animation had been done, we all looked at it and we went, oh, so we've done this for one of our larger instruments, um, an instrument that actually would be really difficult for us to demo. I mean, you know, just the transportation costs of getting it to a customer's site would be, would be huge or you'd have to get into our site. It's not going to replace that, but I wonder if in a lot of cases just being able to show – you know, some of the basics of how how you load samples into this thing, how you run it, you know, what does it look like? What are the different bits? That light bulb moment goes off. And I, you know, I kind of could see it around the room when we were watching this video. Um, so, you know, as a result, we said, oh, okay, let's let's go in on this. Let's get the little um series of animations that we want for this that are going to achieve that. And then, you know, actually see if they have that desired effect with us um and i know that's something that wouldn't have have come from me to actually do it and and maybe that's the other part of it is there's so much stuff out there i mean (laughs) anybody who's you know got marketing in their job title you know you get bombarded on a you know hourly basis i don't know of of like new tech or, or new approaches that you must take to be successful in your marketing um, and it's it's easy just to get completely overwhelmed and think I'll stick with what I know that's worked for me in the past. And although you know, like with this animation, you may think that's cool, you may think that's something that I want to do. It's not until you actually see it and then make it a reality you'll know whether it works for you or not. And sometimes you just got to take a little bit of a leap of faith. Completely agree with with that. There are so many different tactics and so many different new tech stacks that come out and all of a sudden you say it always it's something's always the next new big thing isn't it yeah um and but yeah sometimes you do just have to take that leap of faith and say okay we're going to try this if it doesn't work it doesn't work but we've learned something mm-hmm. and we'll we'll try something else now so yeah completely yeah. it's really interesting to hear you, to hear you talk about 2d animation yeah. as that example um and, and you know and i think sometimes as well we sort of have a, an expectation that what we do will have an instant impact and sometimes it it, it doesn't sometimes it's a, a slow burn so i was thinking back actually as, as an example um so when i was uh, working uh, at ge one of the people on the uh, on, on my team who was responsible for our trade shows she had this real thing i want to have lego models on the on the stand uh, lady's name is janine absolutely outstanding marketer um and janine was really passionate about these lego models and we started off um anyone who knows ge does a lot of chromatography one of the things she did was a lego model of chromatography beads and it was very cool it got a lot of attention and so i think you can you can sort of say it 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 had the desired effect that it got people on the booth got you to have a conversation with them which is you know one of the main reasons that you would you would go to a trade show but then over time, that concept of using Lego models evolved to the point where um, the team was making, it wasn't Lego, I can't remember what it's called, but there's like a, a mini version of Lego, but they were making instruments, the uh, Ecta chromatography systems out of these like little kits and giving them away on trade show booths. And then they started giving them away a bit wider. And then you started to see, and there was this period of probably about, I don't know, six to 12 months where 
loads of people on social media were talking about, I just got my Ecto Mini Lego thing and it only took me 45 minutes. There was like almost like a competition. How long, how quickly could you put it together? And, and like that virality, you, I mean, you know, that's the whole thing, the viral stuff, you can't predict it. Mm. That was interesting. But the other thing that was interesting is that was a slow burn that was probably over two or three years from that initial idea of, you know, I want to, I want to do this. And, and sometimes you've got to be prepared for your innovation, not to give you a result in five minutes time, which, you know, for those of us who are used to AdWords and, you know, audience tracking and CRM metrics, you know, could be quite frustrating. So would you say in those sorts of scenarios, it's really important to, um, to make sure you're bringing other departments on board with you to communicate that this is something we're trying out. It's not going to be a uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to have thousands of new leads coming in. Is that important when you're running something like that? I mean, if you can articulate the reason that you're doing it and that people aren't expecting, as you said, some sort of set of results that was never going to come out, it's very helpful. Sometimes you just have to take that leap of faith. And I think, um, uh, so I, I, I know my personality type, right? I'm very action oriented. And I think anybody who's worked with me will tell you quite happily that my modus operandi is fire, ready, aim. Um, so, you know, sometimes planning is not my biggest strength. Uh, and sometimes my biggest strength is actually just getting a thing done. And maybe sort of using the, the example of the animation again, but I can think of other projects where I've done this sort of thing is actually you just need to put it together and show people and they get it. You try and explain it. You try and, you know, put together your financial justification, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't stack up. Right. And sometimes you just need to see it. I think the counterbalance, I mean, I'm painting a really nice picture of all these things that have worked counterbalances. There will be things you do that suck, and you've also got to be able to recognize that early and say, all right, we were trying something new, but now let's put this in the cupboard and never speak of it again because it isn't right for us. Or let's put it in the cupboard and wait for a time until it is right for us, which I think is the other thing. You could just hit the wrong timing um, with what it is you're trying to do. Um, um, I, I think an example that resonates for me on that one is the sort of the virtual trade show thing. Talking to lots of people, I, I think it's it, it it it's not it's not delivering the results that people expect. And it's quite often, you know, that a lot of these virtual trade show experiences cost you as much as going in person. So the ROI is is particularly bad. Um, you know, and we've tried those, or I've been in teams where we've tried those in the past. And I think you know, trying it was the right thing to do. I always think it was right to stop it. But then you think about where we are with, you know, what Meta are doing with their Metaverse and, and other players. Does that mean that in a few months or a couple of years' time, actually the time will be right for those virtual trade shows, virtual, you know, real proper, like in, in a virtual environment um, activities? Quite possibly. I, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I don't have that crystal ball. But I, you know, sometimes, you know, the rest of the world just kind of needs to catch up a little bit. Um, I mean, there, there were probably people who were trendsetters with trying to advertise for scientific products on social media way in advance of when you had enough critical mass of people using that and being a recognized channel. Now, I don't think any company looks at social media and says, this is not where we want to be. This is not where we want to be advertising. But if you got the timing wrong, you could have made that assumption. Absolutely. It's really interesting what you're saying about, so I think it's always really important that marketers get stuff out there so it can be tested on the market and you can get the feedback from your client customers and your client base. And I think there's often a mindset of a needs to be perfect before we put it out to the world. And I would argue that it's actually the reverse. You want the world to tell you what it should be like, not your internal comfort. You have the idea, but your customers are going to tell you what it should look like going forward. I I could not agree with you more on that one. And I think there's two things that come into play there. Um, and I actually think one of the really big things is um, a, a lot of people are inherently perfectionists. And, and actually, you know what? A lot of good marketers are perfectionists because they produce material that is high quality and it's needed. I mean, you think about if you're making your 
I mean, a brochure maybe is a bit of an old school example, but a lot of us still have, you know, effectively hard copy brochures. That's got to be perfect. Spelling errors in that when you've done a print run, wrong picture, you know, that's that's costly to the organization. But if you're doing something that's an experiment, if you put all that effort into making it perfect, you're going to be incredibly defensive. If you do get any feedback that says, I don't think this is right, you don't talk about this, which is important to me, and you'll spend your entire life trying to justify why you did it the way you did it, rather than, well, what if I just spend half a day on doing this, put it out there, and I'm putting it out there with the intention of getting that feedback. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I think that is so important with anything you're trying that's innovative. You know, start small, and um, I believe it's a, 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 I believe it's a saying from uh, President Obama. Apparently, in the cabinet meetings, when people used to say, "Well, this isn't fixing the problem," he used to say, "Yeah, but it's making things better, and better is good." And you know, that's a saying. I, my team are sick of me saying it's like, you know, I know this isn't <laughs> perfect, right? We all know it's not perfect, but is it better? Yeah. Good. Let's move on. That's interesting. I was actually reading Obama's memoirs last night, and he's right. talking about his cabinet meetings um, <laughs> around the financial crisis, and it was a lot of a lot of that. Yeah, this isn't going to fix the problem, but it's going to help out now. So let's yeah. let's do something about it. Um, anyway, let's not get into politics, otherwise we might be here for for let's quite a while. Definitely not do that. <laughs> um, so, Paul. So you've mentioned your current company, HEL Group. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about what that company does, um, about your role there, your target customers, the industries you you, uh, you serve. Yeah, so HEL is an interesting company. Um, we've been going since, I think it's 1986. Um, so we're like, a, the way I describe it is we're like a 30-year-old startup. Um, we really started off as a consultancy business and our founder uh, essentially realized that the instrumentation that was around at the time didn't give him the quality of data that he needed for the, the sort of consultancy work he was getting in, started to develop equipment. And over time, we've now morphed over to being uh, a capital equipment supplier. Um, and the, the consultancy business is, is not something that we do anymore. Um, for a, a relatively small company, we have a broad portfolio. Um, I generally tend to describe this as, as being uh, equipment that addresses four main application areas. Uh, the first one is uh, safety testing for batteries. Second one is process safety testing, so more for chemical engineering side. Third one is more general chemical synthesis, which is quite broad, but we have a flexible platform and inherently can supply a lot of um, uh, different applications. And then the final one, which is relatively new for the business, is on biotechnology and in particular a, a specific niche of, of bioreactor requirements and that's something that we're growing very much um, as a business. Uh, my role here is I'm the chief commercial officer so I've almost been with the company for three years uh, on the day we're recording this and I started off as the chief marketing officer um, and really with a remit when I joined at that point to set up the marketing function and uh, in particular, to set up the strategic marketing function, you know, essentially product management, because that wasn't something that the, the company had at that point, but also to, uh, I don't know, put some more juice, I guess, into the marketing communications, you know, the, the, the ad and promo side of it. However, I know we all have different terms, however people feel comfortable describing it, um, <laughs> that side of the business. Um, and um, interestingly, when I, when I joined the CEO, but one of her sort of uh, requests for me was she she knew that we you know we were a very technical company a lot of very technical people she really wanted me to show the company that marketing wasn't just the coloring in department it's you know that we're a very data driven fact driven um, uh, part of the business and that you know it's it's crucial in terms of your commercial effectiveness to make sure that you're a designing and articulating your products to meet a company uh, to meet a customer need and then b that you're actually doing the uh, lead generation work that feeds into your into your sales funnel um, and then in i think it was may last year role expanded a little bit so i now as well as the marketing function look after the whole commercial operation so the the sales and and, and the service side um, and i know this is not necessarily around innovation but for me I, I feel so so passionate about the fact that you want to give your customers 
a, a consistent and hopefully excellent approach all the way from their first very first interaction with you all the way through to the point where they're a customer and you know you're servicing their equipment or you know possibly even decommissioning it for them you know that that thing um and you know it, it is a continuum every, every point on that uh spectrum um you know you need to be thinking about what the handoffs are and it, it's easy in bigger organizations to have a marketing team you know and they have clear goals and metrics which you know might be you know, hand over x leads to the to the sales team a, a month or a week or whatever um but actually that's not what the company's goal is right um you know in our case we have very clear I'd be quite honest you know we've got revenue and profit and cash targets right so you know if if you've got a team that's not generating leads that are helping you achieve those because they're not valuable they're not in the right application area they're in the wrong region of the world you're not doing the right thing so for me it's looking at that whole end-to-end are we driving the company where it wants to go um so there you go. That was a brief history. I will stop there. <laughs> yeah, there's that phrase that says uh, no one cares where the leads came from or no one cares about how many leads you got as long as you're hitting your revenue targets. The rest is fairly irrelevant. I, there's there's an element to that. There's an element to that. I, I mean, I'm being a bit flippant. I mean, obviously, I think everybody looks at leading indicators, right, to, to tell you, you know, if things are going well, where are they going well in the process and where could they be improved? And if they're not going well, you know, what do you need to to sort out but um yeah there is a big there is a big element to that i think is is a reality and especially in a well i know it's true in every company it's true in every company so so paul when you first joined as the chief market officer what was um so i think you just mentioned in there about making sure the full customer journey was really streamlined every touch point was was spot on what about sort of quick wins? Are they important when you're coming in as a market in a marketing leader role? And if so, did you have any quick wins in the first say six, 30, 60, 90 days? What would they look like? Um, so yes, I I think getting quick wins is important, and you know, kind of read the room if you if you know if you're if you're joining a new company or you know or taking maybe you know recently been promoted into a role like that. What is it that senior leadership want? And you know. It can be the case that everybody has their own opinion about what they want from marketing. And so that means you're going to have to either strategically make some people happy and upset some people, or you're going to have to say to them, look, guys, you've all got to get on the same page here about what you want me to do. Um, so I do think that's important. Um, if, if, if you've got other demands, make sure they're really clear. I mean, going back, you know, in terms of what my CEO said to me around making sure that people understood that marketing was data driven and it was a, you know, a critical element of driving the business forward. One of the first wins that, that, that I did, um, was it's very important to talk to a wide range of stakeholders and get a lot of input because you can come in with a, with an opinion which, which I certainly did. You know, I joined HL with, with with opinions about the kind of things I was going to be focusing on. One of the things that really, really shocked me was talking, and in particular to the sales team. You know, asking them what it is they wanted from, needed from uh, marketing. The, the consistent thing that came back is just like look, our overview brochure. It's like they kind of said, you know, all our brochures need updating, but if you could just the overview brochure, the one that is like touches on all different application areas. That would be such a massive win. And um, at the time, I remember I had like one other person in the marketing team and I said, okay, it's a Friday in two weeks, we're going to release the new brochure. And we hadn't written a word of copy and we busted our asses for two weeks. And um, on the Thursday afternoon, two weeks, well, so I guess 13 days later, I put out draft one um, and, uh, put out the second draft on the Friday afternoon. Um, and I think, you know, it's like, look, you, you can do this stuff if you put your, your, you know, your mind to it and your focus on it. Um, and I also think that is an absolutely golden opportunity to do that kind of thing. Once you're more in the job, the pulls on your time and the different like attention sappers that you've got going on multiply at an increasing rate. You know, you can almost claim, 
you know, well, look, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm at the unconscious incompetence stage, so I don't know what I'm ignoring, but I know I can make a difference if I get this done. I think that's absolutely golden. And it is a benefit, I think, of, of taking an approach to your way of working to try and push all of those attention grabbers out of the way. You know, yes, you've probably got a to-do list of about 5 million things that people in the company feel are mission critical for the business to move forward. And you can feel swamped and overwhelmed by all of those requests and you try and fix them all and you get nothing done. I mean, I think anybody who's read around, you know, sort of focused working and uh, we'll see that. Um, And that is one of the things that you've kind of got to suck it up. I, I think, you know, another thing that's important to do in the first 30 you know, first three months or, or whatever period of time is actually say, right, I'm now taking an assessment. What I'm going to focus on are these two things. I know all this other stuff people think is important. I'm not going to get to it. So just set your expectations right on the floor right now and then just do those two things and get them done. I think anybody moving into a new role does themselves a lot of good having that clear vision, that clear purpose and being able to articulate it. Yeah, it's the old, I'll try and do 10 things badly or two things really well. Um, yeah. Paul, if, if we may, can we move on to a bit about leadership? So obviously in a leadership role now, yeah, we have a lot of listeners who will be in leadership roles or who will be aspiring to be in leadership roles in the future. To you, what does good and bad leadership look like? I think, unfortunately, there's no end to what bad leadership looks like. Um, uh, and I think there is no magic formula um, I so I, I've been really, really lucky in my career to have been through a lot of development and had a lot of opportunities. And and I was trying to like pull this together before talking to you. And there are two things that keep sticking out in my mind. So I'm going to trust my gut. The first one is leadership is situational. Um, the the kind of discussion you have with a long-term member of staff who's typically performed really well, who's underperforming, if you've got to have that discussion. It's a different discussion than you have from somebody who's new to the organization and isn't performing where they need to be. Root causes may be very similar. It might be you know, a, a personal thing that's, that's impacting both of them, right? which is transmitting through to work. But the way that you address that that conversation um, and, and the the actions that you might take could be very very different as a result so you have to consider the situation um, I think second thing is know yourself um, know where you're strong and, and and I'm a big believer in playing to your strengths and understanding where you have weaknesses or areas that, that aren't as strong and, and, and have some support there. Um, so as I said, I'm a very action-oriented person. One of the things that I am absolutely horrific, horrific at doing is copy reading text. You know, I, I mean, I'm not a great typer and I'm not very good at copy reading stuff. I, you know, I sit there, I think I've stared at the screen. And <laughs> so, you know, the, the way that you know I address that is, you know, one, um, uh, if, look for any marketer out there whoever has to write anything for the love of god pay the money and invest in grammarly you know it's if you don't know what grammarly is it's like a turbocharged uh, spell checker for word or whatever works cross platforms i am a huge believer in the power of, of grammarly because it doesn't just pick up on you misspell and it picks up on the fact that you've got a comma where it shouldn't be which is changing the whole meaning of your sentence um uh, Grammarly, you can send a checks uh, via Danny, and that'll be great. Um, <laughs> and the other way that I deal with that is um, my CEO. She comes from um, an auditing background, so attention to detail is you know her attention to detail is insane, and you know she knows that I'll get things done if she doesn't mind proofreading them for me or or spell checking them. Um, and that's probably quite a trivial example. There are probably deeper examples, but. Um, you know, re- rely on the team around you to um, to provide a you know the, the, the complete output that's required. Um, we tend to use um, at HEL. We tend to use Belbin profiling when we're hiring, um, and we look at 
Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Balbin, it looks at team roles and, you know, it says there are nine roles that you need for a successful team. And really what it, it sort of says is if I then look across the team, have I got any gaps? So, you know, in my case, um, the gap of spell checking and that, that, that sort of monitor evaluated role, they call it, that's weak with me. Have I got somebody else who can pick that up? Or have I got too many ideas people and no action people? You know, you can use some tools like that. And I think they, they, they don't necessarily stand on their own, you know, you, you, but they're very important indicators that can help you uh, put your team together. And then, and I'm going to say this knowing full well that I'm a fire ready aim kind of person, but it's, it, it's just get shit done. Um, sorry, get stuff done. Um, it, it, you know, d- don't talk about things. Don't try and boil the ocean. Um, do something, put it out into the world and, and move on. And the example I always give my team, and I think it kind of works for, for marketers, imagine a situation where you've you've decided you're going to advertise in, in trade publications, actual dead tree publications. You can have 20 adverts that are written that need final copy proving and sending off to the journal. They are having zero impact to your business and they've sucked up a ton of time. If you have one advert that's actually in a journal and it gets one inquiry, it's got an infinite return relative to those 20 that never made it. So get a thing done, wipe your hands, move on, next thing. And so what about if members of your team, do you help them to develop their own leadership skills if they're looking to to continually improve and to continue progress within the company? How can a leader um, look to develop their own team members' leadership skills? I might just twist that a little bit, Danny. It's not inherently leadership. You might have people on your team who want to develop, but they have no interest in ever having a leadership role. And I think it is critical to be looking at what it is your people want to do to develop. It might be they want to develop a new um, programming skill, for instance. You know, they want to be able to do more of the website work directly than work with your contractor. Um, you know, it, it might be. They, they want to develop their Adobe skills or, I mean, there's a million one things that we could we could put in that category. I think it is important to work on developing your people. I, I believe that a lot of the models on development these days say that ideal development is about 70% on the job, 20% with mentoring or similar activities, and then 10% with courses or, or classroom-based activities. Um, so, you know, if you're a leader, great. You know, if you don't spend a penny on an external course for somebody, you can still have 70% of the impact by helping them develop on the job. Um, so, I mean, A, you've got to really understand what is driving that individual, what excites them as a potential development uh, activity. B, you've got to know how that aligns to where the company is or where the company is is going. Um, and that, that has to exist, right? You don't just help people to develop purely out of the goodness of your heart. There's got to be a, a business reason for it. Um, and then, again, you've got to be situational, but there's, there's, there's a really interesting and I think difficult balance to walk between showing people and sort of like, holding their hands, working with them um, to, to gain new skills or to do new things. And at some point, you, you've got to let them make some mistakes on their own. So, I mean, I, I'm guessing most people on here have learned to ride a bike and I know I've got scars from when I was four or five or whatever and bits of gravel <laughs> embedded in me, but I can cycle fine now. And I think there is a little bit of giving people that space to try things and fail and fail can be, it takes them longer than they expected. The quality isn't as good because they're still learning, but help them to develop. Um, and one of the things, so here's my, here is my instant uh, fix tip. One of the things that I personally never really understand is if you as a leader are in a regular management forum or you're reporting regularly more senior to more senior people in the business, every once in a while, if you've got one of your team who you're looking at as a you know, potential leader candidate or you know, who's going to develop, have them do that for you. If you're off traveling or if you're off sick or on holiday, you know, don't just say, well, I'm sorry, I won't be at the next meeting. You say, 
my you know my team member will deputize for me because that person needs to see the kind of discussions that you're involved in because they need to I think elevates maybe not quite the right word, but they need to change the perspective of how they're thinking about the impact they're having on the business. And even in, I mean, a company like ours, we're about 80 people, you know, we don't have 20 layers of management, right? We're quite inherently quite a flat business. Even if you've got all those, even if you've got that flat business and the discussions I'm having with my boss are different to the ones that I'm having with my team or even the leaders on my team. So giving them that exposure you know, if, if, if people really understand and, you know, it's amazing, you get people coming back and saying, well, you guys were all talking about this or this was talked about at the management meeting. Because of that, should I really be focusing on doing this or should it actually be this? And you're going, good God, you're right. And again, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're empowering you, you, your people. Um, be, be, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's books and books and books written about this. Be, I think you've got to be aggressive as well at thinking about who's going to be your replacement. And there's a, there's a, there's a selfish element to this. Um, it, it, it can, it can feel quite nervous thinking I'm, you know, I'm pointing at this person in my team and, you know, they're ready to take my job right now. But if you don't do that, then when you're thinking about your own development you know, and your boss says, right, you're now ready to take the next step who's going to backfill your role and you can't give that answer. They're like, well, sorry, your role's too important. So until you can answer that, you stay where you are. You, you've got to have your people develop. And it just, you know, if they start doing work that you were doing yesterday, it means tomorrow you can do something more fun, higher value, more interesting. I'm a massive believer in that. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff, Paul. Um, I'd like to finish off with a little bit about digital transformation, if that's all right. Um, yeah, so if a company's looking at adapting uh, more of their digital, overall digital strategies, are there any key indicators that would tell you it's time to be looking at that? I, I think the biggest indicator is your watch. Um, and if it tells you that it's later than 2005, um, <laughs> yes, you should start doing digital transformation right now. Um, there, is a, there is a Chinese proverb that says that, you know, the best time to plant a new tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Um, if you haven't started, start today. Um, there, there is nothing going on out there that isn't happening digitally. You know, and pick what it is you want to do. It doesn't mean you need to be across every single social network. It doesn't mean you need a brand new website. It could be as straightforward as, I'm going to actually investigate Google AdWords. I'm maybe going to talk to a provider like Azo, who already have a very strong online presence, and I can leverage. You know, I can leverage that. Um, it could be using data. You know, investing in a in a decent CRM that gives you data. I think that CRM quite often gets, or even CRM in your marketing automation, even quite often gets ignored from this uh, from this this discussion. You know, and, and think about how you're going to use that and scale that. I mean, if, if, if you're in a, a marketing leadership role and you've got management who say that your customers are not online, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you, your management is wrong. Um, your, your customers are online. It's entirely possible that there is a split in your customer base between those who are online and working and those who aren't. But, you know, the metric, which I think we all know, we keep coming back to, somewhere between 60 and 70% of the buying journey is now done and the customer prefers to do it before they want to interact with any human being at your company. And in fact, if you try and jump in that too early, you can quite often put them off. So if you're not making your information easy to find online, you're screwed, quite frankly. So yeah, yeah look at your watch. Um, if you're listening to this in the past, um, you might have some time, but for everybody else, if you're not thinking about your digital transformation, uh, get on it right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting what you were saying about the 60 to 70. I mean, this isn't really relevant to what we're talking about, but I'm in the process of buying a new car at the moment. And I've been looking, I've been trying to do all my research and the companies that haven't provided me with clear and obvious pricing uh, are just off the list of just purely because I want to be able to go into any sort of sales conversation informed um, as much as possible. And the ones that haven't provided that are, are off the list automatically. <laughs> I, I, I can give you multiple examples in in our world as well, where you've got marketing platform platform providers, 
and you literally just want to know, is this going to cost me a thousand pounds a month, 10,000 pounds? You know, you want to get an idea of price. doesn't mean you're not going to do it, but it could affect things. And when you have to go through the whole rigmarole of talk to somebody, I want to know, blah, 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 blah. And you know, you're just going to get, you know, somebody trying to upsell you. Uh, exactly. It, it happens all the time. You know, your customers will feel the same thing, right? I mean, if, if ever anyone listening to this has that icky feeling, your customers will have it as well. They don't use a different internet in the evening as they do at work. You know, it's <laughs> it's it, it's the same thing. Uh, be there, be visible, be as transparent as you can be. You give people the information um, and just help them to choose you. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Paul. Um, we'll finish off just a couple more questions yeah. about, I mean, we ask a lot of people this about their predictions and the out, and the outlook for the next five years. Any thoughts on how you think the industry and marketing is going to change over the next five years? You spoke about the metaverse earlier. Is that yeah. going to be mainstream within the next five years, do you think? I think some versions of that will be. Um, I mean, just seeing uh, how excited my nieces got about you know, being able to get in the, and, and actually the stuff they're doing, um, you know, in the metaverse now, that the fact that they, you know, they get together with their friends and they might watch a movie together, you know, in that setting. It, I mean, th- this is this is not your grandma's augmented reality or virtual reality. This this is completely different. Um, and I do think um, anyone who's um, anyone who listens to podcasts probably heard of somebody called Tim Ferriss. Um, I know when I listen to him, a, a phrase he keeps using at the moment is, you know, he thinks that the ready player one kind of scenario is nowhere near as far away as people think. So I do think that that is, is, is coming as a change societally. I don't know. It's difficult to say how we will react to that. I mean, if you think about what's happening now with trade shows, I mean, so for, for us, this is quite an exciting week. We've been to a couple of trade shows in China during the um, during the pandemic because, uh, you know, China kind of has, has largely shut itself off from the rest of the world. But we're at our first trade show post-pandemic this week. And it's, you know, it's the ACS. It's a huge organization. And they're having a hybrid uh, real-world virtual thing. You know, what... What role does virtual reality or the metaverse play then in events like that? Um, you know, there are, will be people who want to go physically. I mean, you know, it's in San Diego. It's a sunny day here in the UK at the moment, but, you know, trust me, the margaritas are better in uh, in San Diego than they are in Hertfordshire in the UK. Very interested to see what, what happens there. I think the other things, and I've, it's a couple of notes I've jotted down here. I think in the industry overall, we've seen consolidation um, and we're going to see more consolidation. So, you know, you think about some of the big players, um, you know, I, you know, Cytiva going into Danaher, you know, what's going to happen between then Cytiva and Paul within Danaher Corporation. You're going to see that sort of consolidation. I mean, you know, you've got the likes of Thermo Fisher, you know, constantly sucking up uh, companies in, in, into that. So I think you're going to continue to see that consolidation. I think there's a, there's a healthy pipeline of, um, new scientific companies spinning out of universities and the like. So, you know, it's not it's not a one-way street to catastrophe. I think there's just more readiness now for those large organizations to, to have acquisition as absolutely a critical element of their business growth strategy. You know, organic growth is not going to cut it alone. Um, the other thing that's, I think, starting to get really interesting and I'm seeing more and more written about is is the supply chain side of things you know pandemic gas prices war in ukraine you know all of these things we we couldn't have predicted and they're all having impacts on supply chains now um you know we we're not in a uh, hgl we're not in a business where we're supplying to the farmer industry you know sort of like raw materials for for drugs or anything you know, those people you know it's like they don't get the stuff insulin doesn't get made and you know you know, people with diabetes have a really bad day. Um, but, you know, we have customers who are looking to do their research and, you know, trying to trying to make sure that we can actually get a flight at the moment. I mean, just silly things going, you know, flights out to Asia because we can't fly over Russia. 
it's it's ridiculous. Even flying over to the US, sending equipment over there, it's taking so much longer than it used to be. So I think people are going to look much more at the logistics around your business as well. So it's not just have you got a good value proposition on, you've got a knowledgeable person, you've got a good piece of kit, and I know you've got the support. It's like, can you get it to me? Can you get me spares when I need them? And those, I think, are going to come become increasingly important um, uh, parts of the, the value proposition. And I think we're all kind of waiting to see what happens now that Google's not tracking everything we do quite so much and reporting all that information back to, to marketers. Um, yeah, I, you know, th- th- there's a lot of questions out there. There'll just be different ways um, that, that that impact what we do in marketing. Yeah, I think the, the Google thing is a massive one, isn't it? And something we, we're monitoring at the moment and hopefully we'll get some good data and be able to present it to, to everyone listening here in the near future. Uh, Paul, final question. Uh, we ask everyone this who comes on the podcast favorite marketing resource is it is it books websites blogs or is it listening to people like yourself with extensive knowledge and and uh, experience i mean i'm a huge podcast listener um and if i can plug the modern chemistry podcast um host one of my own um i think we all do post pandemic um but other than other than podcasts for me um uh, things i wrote down were we're a HubSpot CRM and marketing automation house, but one of the reasons I got into that was actually because the HubSpot blog is so useful, even if you're not one of their customers. So I think that is a great resource. I also think uh, marketing profs and all they do, they're more general B2B, but Anne Handley and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think quite often it's a tonic from the day-to-day crushing reality sometimes that we face at work. Um, It generally tends to put a smile on your face and you learn something. And then books, there were three books I've written down. Um, so there's um, Hammy's Persuading Scientists. I think anybody in scientific marketing should read that. It's it's also, it's it's not a tough read it, and, and it's laid out really well. If you're interested in sort of like viral products or building a loyal base, there's a really interesting book by a guy called Near IR called Hooked, basically around how social networks get you hooked on their products. Um, and then the last one, which is maybe more if you're in the strategic marketing side, and I have to admit, shamefully, I came to very late in life, but is The Innovator's Dilemma, um, so by Clayton Christensen. And um, he, he's the person who kind of came up with this concept of the customer's jobs to be done. So whether you're thinking about articulating what your products do or designing new products, you put it in terms of the job that the customer is trying to achieve and you can you can articulate it that that is quite a dense book um but i was lucky i saw uh, clayton give a presentation at an event i was at um and he passed away not that long ago um uh, it's a real shame he was a he was a fantastic presenter and the book is just jam-packed with stuff that will blow your mind yeah awesome paul there's lots of good resources for the, the listeners there and um, if you want to find out a bit more about paul orange you can on linkedin you can connect with him on linkedin you can check out his podcast there he's, he's sharing uh, links to that regularly and i would recommend if you're if you're interested to do that uh, paul thank you very much for for sharing your time i could have spoken to you for hours about lots of those things but uh, i've taken up enough of your time so thank you for thank you for being so generous with yours great pleasure danny take care Big thanks to Paul for sharing his time and expertise with us all today. If you've enjoyed listening, then please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with a colleague that you think will enjoy listening to it. If you would like to learn more information about how to run your own podcast, then visit azonetwork.com forward slash podcasts. I'll be back again soon with another guest for the marketing science community. We hope you can join us then. And until next time, take care and thanks for listening.